Hi, my name is Pastor Daniel. I'm so excited you're taking an opportunity to watch this sermon. We believe that any time we open the Word of God, that we have an opportunity to be changed because the Bible is the actual live Word of our Heavenly Father. And we hope that this impacts you in a positive way. A quick word of caution, and that is that this sermon that you're about to watch is by no means uh, the church. It's not a substitute for a church. It's not a substitute for a pastor in your life. The church is not a building. The church is the body of Christ, a group of believers doing life together, worshiping and pursuing Jesus together. In no way should this be any sort of primary discipleship in your life, and in no way should this replace the pastor that somewhere God has called to shepherd you. We hope sincerely that you're part of a local church somewhere. And if you're not, I wanna encourage you to go find a local church to be part of, because for all of the ups and downs and messiness of the local church, the Bible calls it the bride of Christ. It is the hope of the world. And you need to be part of one because it'll help. If you don't know where or how to find a local church, we'd love to help. You can simply go to our website and email us at hello at resurrect.church and we'll do our best to plug you in. We appreciate your time. We hope that this supplementary discipleship impacts you in a positive way. We believe the Bible has a profound impact on us when we allow God to speak to us. Thanks. Morning. How's everybody doing? Excited for Palm Sunday? Not really, huh? Okay. <clears throat> Why would we celebrate Palm Sunday? Well, yeah, let, me, let me submit something to you. Um, I would submit to you that the wonder and awe of a lot of things are often lost in the face of the familiar. And what I mean by that is that when you kind of get used to something, you tend to lack an appreciation for it. So uh, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's pretty awe-inspiring, but I would submit to you that, that someone who works there and, and spends 10, 15, 20 years showing up there every day like doesn't show up on the, the 1,000th day or the 5,000th day as awe-inspired as they did the first day, and it's just because it's become familiar. And so for many of us, we've been through a lot of Palm Sundays. I've, I've been to church for a lot of Palm Sundays, yeah, a couple of you, and uh, you've heard the story like over and over and over again. And so then at some point, it begins to lose a little bit of its, its wonder, a little bit of its awesomeness. And uh, I would submit that a lot of us kind of underestimate some of the stories that we lead into Jesus' life. And yet, yeah, they're, really, they're really important. Um, if you look at uh, Palm Sunday, it begins a little, a little six-day journey to the cross for Christ that actually contains a huge portion of the Gospels that we know of, that, w that have been recorded. Uh, so here's what I would uh, submit to you today. If, if you will engage in the scripture with me today as we begin to walk through this story and look at what Jesus is doing in it, um, I would submit that we'll end today kind of learning two things. And the first is this, uh, we will learn how and why we should really spend all of this next week preparing for Easter, how to prepare and why we should prepare. And then secondly, uh, I, I think what we'll see in today's story of this idea of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, we will get a better understanding 
of Jesus' kingdom perspective about his life here on earth. Now, in the traditional calendar of events, Palm Sunday, uh, which is Jesus coming into Jerusalem, that happened on a Sunday. And then from there, on Monday, he, he goes in to the temple and he clears the temple. He cleans the temple. We're going to see that at the very end of our passage today. We're in about 21 verses. Tuesday, he ends up in controversy with Jewish leaders. Wednesday, he ends up resting. Thursday, uh, we are, have recorded the preparation for Passover. Friday is his trial and crucifixion. So that's where we get the story of the Garden of Gethsemane and his time with Pilate and his torture and then the crucifixion. Saturday, Jesus rests in the tomb. That was the Sabbath so they didn't go to the tomb. And then Sunday, Jesus is raised from the dead. Six days, six days. Now, Jesus was about 33 years old when he died. Uh, we have uh, some of his early life recorded, but for the most part, his ministry, his public ministry, was three years long. So how much of this little six-day window would you say uh, is incorporated in the gospel? The gospel, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four accounts of his life, and, and primarily his public ministry, is 88 chapters, Okay, so there's 88 chapters of, of gospel, basically story of Jesus' life and ministry. This six-day window, and then the two times that he will show up to the disciples after he's resurrected, is 28 of the 88 chapters. A third of everything in the gospels is about a six-day window. Kind of important? Really important. Many of the most impactful stories about Jesus' ministry happen in a six-day window. Not just the crucifixion and the resurrection. Many of the stories that we're going to see, if you begin in some of your Gospels here at Palm Sunday of him coming into Jerusalem, you'll find that there are seven, eight, nine, ten chapters that actually are only six days in time. So what happens as he approaches the cross in the last six days of his three-year ministry is incredibly impactful. It's very heavily focused on in the Gospels. And so what we want to do is we want to take some time to look at the beginning of this, and then we want to take some time this week to look at the lead up to his crucifixion and resurrection. Now, here's what I think we're going to see in the story today. Here's what I think you'll see in these six days as he goes to the cross, and then we'll see Eddie. Easter. Jesus' perspective is really different than you and I's perspective. Jesus has this kingdom perspective. He looks at everything through this lens of eternity, through this lens of a kingdom perspective. And so every time we, we turn to stories of Jesus, they're a little off from what you and I would call normal. Amen? So when he's washing his disciples' feet, even his disciples are like, what are you doing? That's the thing that we would say for the lowest of the lowest slave. In fact, not even the second lowest slave had to uh, clean feet. It was only the lowest of the low slave that had to do that. So when Jesus does that, they're like, whoa, yo, you're the rabbi, you're the master, you're the teacher. In fact, you just came in and, and walked into Jerusalem and called you king. You can't do that. And Jesus is like, if you don't let me do this, you can't get into heaven. He's like, okay then. Point taken. Jesus' perspective is always different. When Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, and we have all these Beatitudes, we have all these things that he preaches, every one of them you go, ooh, because they're backwards. They just don't match our human perspective. And so what we're going to look at is a story we've all heard if you've been in church for a while. If you've shown up on Palm Sunday, you've heard the story of Jesus coming in. We call it Palm Sunday because of the palm branches. We'll talk about that. We've all heard it. And yet in it, what you're going to see is a kingdom perspective that is vastly different from our human perspective. 
So let's start here. There are four things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the preparation, the celebration, the lamentation, and I forgot the last one. So I'll look it up. The denunciation. That's a really long word, y'all. A lot of syllables. All right, we're going to look at four things. We can start in verse 28. This is Luke chapter 19. Verse 28, we're going to go through 36 in the preparations. Here, read with me, hopefully be on screen. Verse 28, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We'll talk about what up to Jerusalem meant. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay. Can I just submit to you that's kind of a weird story? So here's, here's the first reason that's a weird story. Um, in actuality, Jesus coming in uh, to Jerusalem is prophesied in Zechariah, and in Zechariah, it's prophesied that he'll ride a donkey into Jerusalem, which just seems like a weird detail, but it's in there, and he does. So in Zechariah 9.9, it says this, the coming king of Zion, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, we believe that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies during his life, death, and resurrection, including prophecies about where he was born and who he was born to and who his lineage was and all sorts of things that he had no control over, and yet he fulfilled those prophecies anyways. So this is the fulfillment of yet another Old Testament prophecy, that the king of kings would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, that seems like a strange detail. I'm going to explain why it's actually a really odd detail. Here's why. Well, actually, before I explain why that's really odd, can I just say, do you find it odd that he's like, if anyone asks you why you're taking this donkey, you just say, the Lord has need of it, and they're going to be like, yeah, cool, take it? <laughs> if someone showed up at your house, knocked on your door, and was like, hey, um, I'm taking your car. I need the keys. And you were like, uh, excuse me? And they were like, the Lord has need of it. Are you handing that over? I'm just asking, it seems odd. Like for me, I, first of all, no, I'm not. I'm like, yeah. um, we have like a little ring doorbell. I'm not even answering probably. I'm an introvert. Anyways, <clears throat> but even if I said yes, like we, we got my wife a new car last year and I'm probably gonna look at them and I'm gonna look at my wife's new car and I'll be like, uh, what do you think about an 11-year-old Sienna? Because that one's worth a lot less. You like minivans? Uh, no, it just seems weird, right? And they just gloss over it like, yeah, sure. I'm, here you go. Now, why is that? Why is that a little bit odd? Why is that? A, I mean, it's clearly odd, but but why is that a kingdom perspective? Well, it's a kingdom perspective because y'all gotta understand that, that there's nothing in your life that you own that God doesn't look at and rightly say, mine, mine, 
Mine, mine, mine, mine, mine. Might sound a little, there's a cartoon like that, right? Mine, 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 mine. Why? Because he gave you everything you have. The very air in your lungs he put there. So there's nothing where you get to go look at, this is the portion I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you touch God, and this is the portion I'm gonna keep over here, and I'm gonna control this. You do yours, I'll do mine, we'll keep them separate, and everybody will be happy. Except God doesn't work that way. That's not a kingdom perspective, that's a secular perspective. You see, in a kingdom perspective, you, you don't get to put your hands around your possessions and make them for your use and your glory and your worship. In the kingdom perspective, you get to hold your hand open and what God chooses to put in there, you get to use for as long as you have it and steward it well because when he takes it back out, he does. Because it's his, not yours. And Jesus will tell multiple illustrations and stories and parables in his three-year ministry about stewards and servants who are managing the master's resources so that you and I could get it through our thick skull that your salary, your income, your house, your children, your relationships are not yours, they're God's. Now, the third reason that this is really odd is that kings don't ride into cities on donkeys. They just don't. How many people have seen a Disney movie? Four of you. You guys are liars. I know you watch Disney. How many princes ride in on donkeys? None. What do they ride in on? Giant war horses that are impressive. Big white ones, right? Big, giant, impressive, muscular, strong, white horses. Every Disney prince has been on one. Where did that even come from? It actually comes from the Bible. You see, Jesus is gonna ride in on a donkey because he's coming for peace. He's coming as a servant this time, but Jesus is coming back again to conquer and take what is his, and when he comes back the second time, he's not on a donkey, y'all. If you turn to Revelation 19, there's this picture that John had when he wrote Revelation where he sees Jesus coming back to judge and rule, and when he comes back, this is what it says in verse 11, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings lord of lords there's a day coming where jesus isn't going to be on a donkey he's not going to come as a humble servant he's not going to come to give his life up because that's already happened he's coming to judge and when he does he'll be on a white horse but here he's on the donkey now, there's only two times that we see kings and rulers on a donkey 
in the Bible. Number one, we see it in peacetime. When Solomon takes the crown from David in time of peace, he comes in on donkey. And secondly, kings are on donkeys when they're going out to meet their enemy and ask for peace. Many, when they're surrendering. Not at all ironic that Jesus is prophesied to come on a donkey in humility, in servanthood, when what he's actually going to be doing in order to conquer sin is he's going to surrender his life. So he's on a donkey. Verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, Everything in what just happened in those four verses is actually pretty odd. First of all, uh, if we turn to Matthew 21, because there's four accounts of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and they all kind of detail this, but each of them have little bits of details that we don't see. So Luke, which we're reading right here, talks about how the Pharisees have a problem with what's being said. We'll talk about that in a minute. It's the only of the four Gospels that records that comment. Uh, but other ones, like Matthew 21, talk about uh, the, the crowd, which starts with his disciples, but then it grows and swells, and all the people in the town around the outskirts of Jerusalem begin to line the roads, and they're yelling, Hosanna. We just sang that, Hosanna. If you've never been in church, you're wondering why we 45 times just said the word Hosanna. You don't even know what it means. Hosanna, Hosanna. It quite literally means save us. Save us. What are they saying? What are they saying here in verse 38 says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a really interesting thing to say. Why would his disciples, maybe he has hundreds of disciples, not just the 12 apostles that we hear about. And now the, the crowd has grown to be uh, people that have heard about his miracles. So, so just before this, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And that story, not just his other miracles, but the fact that he walked into a grave <laughs> to a dead man and made him alive has spread. And so his renown has spread. He's coming in, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That is actually from a series of Psalms called the Halal Psalms, 113 through 118. And all of the crowd would have known these Psalms because uh, even though not all of them were as educated in scripture as the Pharisees, they would learn these because they were traditional Psalms that would be sung at the end of Passover and would be sung at the Feast of the Tabernacles. So at the end of both these national holidays, everyone would sing these psalms out loud. And one of them is Psalm 118, 26. And it says this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's meant to be sung to the Messiah, to the King of Kings. And the crowd on their own has substituted the word blessed is he who, and on their own has substituted in the word King. So now a crowd of people outside of Jerusalem are recognizing Jesus as King of King and Lord of Lords as the Messiah who comes to free them from, in their minds, Roman oppression. He's here. And they're quoting, singing scripture to him as he goes by. And then 
Get this, because this is the crazy part. Then they sing this. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's not a psalm. That's not found in psalms. In fact, it's only found in one place and they couldn't have read it because it wasn't written. Do you know where? Luke 2. Do you know who says it? The angels, when Jesus is born, fill the night sky and say this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So a crowd of people, I want you to catch this, a crowd of people lining the streets as Jesus comes by in a donkey are singing to him the traditional psalm that would have been sung to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They've substituted King in. They're identifying Jesus as the Messiah. And then, without ever being able to have even known this or read this, are inspired via the Holy Spirit to begin singing out glory to God in the highest. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, some interesting things about this. The first is this. I want you to consider that this is Sunday and the very same people lining the streets calling Jesus King of King, Lord of Lords, Messiah, will in less than five days gather in a riot around Pilate and ask for Jesus to be killed. If we turn to Luke 23, 18 through 23, listen to this. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So the hypocrisy of people that had lined the streets to identify Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to lay down their outer garments, it says, on the, on the road, and put them down so that the donkey would, would walk across their finest of clothing in honor of the Messiah less than a week later are urgent that he be put to death. Let me just ask you, how, how many times have I come in on a Sunday with my hands raised high to praise and worship the Heavenly Father and not made it to Friday before I am back serving my own desires and my own flesh? We are a fickle people, but I want you to hear this. When, when Jesus came to when Jesus came to surrender himself to the cross, he, he didn't come to die for the parade, he came to die for the rioters. He came to die for the mob. He came knowing full well that you and I have been oppressed by sin. And he came anyways. And the interesting part of this is that the Pharisees realize the significance that the crowd does not. 
See, the Pharisees were so well-trained. They understood the prophecies. They understood what was being said. They understood that, that Jesus was being identified not simply as a liberator from Rome, but as the Messiah. And they're none too happy because this means a shift in power. And here's the thing about humans is when we have power, we really don't like it when other people get power. And so knowing full well what this means, they look at Jesus and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Meaning don't allow the, the blasphemy of being called the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And he answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, up until this point, six days until his death, Jesus has never allowed anyone to publicly recognize him as the Messiah. In fact, uh, he t heals people frequently and tells them, don't say anything about this. And uh, when the crowds get too incensed seeing his miracles and seeing the signs, he actually will leave. In John 6, 14 and 15, it says, when people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He will not allow himself to be recognized as the king of kings and the Lord of lords until now. Why now? Why now? Why not before? Why now? Because in this moment, starting on Sunday and leading to Friday, Jesus is marching to his throne. He is marching to his throne. It's just that, again, we think of thrones in a, in a human way. Thrones are about power. Thrones are about honor. Thrones are about you getting your way, and Jesus says, no, that's my throne is a cross. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to be enthroned on a cross and crowned with thorns. It's a different perspective that we wrestle with. We think of honor as power and authority, and Jesus took all that honor and all that authority and all that power and laid his life down. Now you get a really interesting change to the story. Jim Vision, he's on this donkey, there's crowds singing. They're singing psalms and, and prophetic scripture at him. They're recognizing him as king. He's riding into Jerusalem. And verse 41 says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, I mean, that's odd already, right? We're in a pretty happy time. Anyone ever seen a parade, particularly like a, a championship parade, like your favorite team won the championship and everyone's cheering and everyone's happy and everyone's singing and Jesus starts crying. What is he, a millennial? It's my party, I'll cry if I want to. Okay, so it's weird. It's just a change. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't match the setting. Jesus is riding in, finally, publicly recognized as king. And he starts weeping. And this is what he says, verse 42, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's talking to Jerusalem, talking to a city. 
But now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What in the world is he talking about? What's happened that you can't see because we're reading this in text is Jesus has traveled to Jerusalem from the southeast from Jericho, 17 miles away. Uh, To do it, you have to go over the Mount of Olives. So he's gonna travel about 15 of those miles going straight up. It's a uh, 3,000 foot incline in about 15 miles. So he's going to have hiked all the way up the top of the Mount of Olives. Then he's gonna get on this donkey that he sent his disciples to get in Bethany, and he's gonna come from the suburb of Jerusalem into Jerusalem to do that as he crests over the top of the Mount of Olives, he's going to descend down into Jerusalem. And on his way down, as he's walking in, he's going to get a glimpse of the whole city. How many of you have driven back from LA and you came down the grapevine and it happened to be one of the three days a year where there's not smog? And you can see Bakersfield laying all out, especially if it's at night, right? See all the lights. Well, he's not that far away. He's close, actually. But when you come down the Mount of Olives and he's on this this animal so he can see over the crowds and he can see the city out in front of him, he begins to weep. He begins to cry over it. He begins to lament over it. He begins to grieve over it. And it, why? Why? Jerusalem was meant to be the heart of a nation, of a people chosen by God to represent God, to honor God, to be a light into the whole world about the goodness and faithfulness of God. And they haven't been. They've been utterly idolatrous. At every chance they have, they've run from God. At every generation, they've fleed God. They've disobeyed God. They're barely out of Egypt. They're making golden calves. And at the heart of that nation is Jerusalem where the temple of God sits. And what they don't know, we do now looking back, is that later in this story, there will be another insurrection and Rome will absolutely demolish the temple. They'll tear every stone down. In fact, they'll make a point of not one stone laying on another. And this prophecy will come true. But you need to understand that most of what the cheering that's going on is about is the idea that the Messiah, the king, is there to liberate them from Rome. Because Rome was oppressive. And the people have been under foreign oppression now for centuries. And they've been at, they get freed from one group and get right back into another. And the hope is that this Messiah, this Jesus, is finally gonna conquer Rome for us and put us back in our rightful place where we're in charge, where we're our own man, where we rule ourselves. In fact, if we flip over to John 12, 13, we find that they're waving palm branches, where we'll get this idea of Palm Sunday from. Why palm branches? Was he hot? Was they fanning him? No, you see, the palm branch was the symbol of Israel. 
We know that uh, in the Second Maccabean revolt against Rome, they minted their own coins because one of the things you did when you revolted against the government, you had to have your own currency. They minted gold coins for their national currency and one side of the coin was a palm branch because it was the national symbol for Israel. And they didn't have a flag. They now, Israel now has a flag, but they didn't have a flag back then. What they had was palm branches. So when Jesus is coming down this road and they're singing, they're waving all of their national flags because he's going to save the country. Boy, that doesn't sound familiar, does it? A country that's supposed to be founded on God, about God, about the providence and goodness and faithfulness of God, and all we ever see is stars and stripes. And instead of being a country about God, they became a country basically that was just known for selling out and running from God. And Jesus looks at this city and he looks at these worshipers that they're not worshiping him. They're worshiping the idea, this nationalistic idea that somehow Israel will be back on top. And he just starts weeping. And if you live in America in 2022, the only appropriate response about how, where our country is at is weeping. It's weeping. There are many things in our country we can be proud about. There are many things we should be embarrassed about. But when you see how far we've run from God as a people, you will weep. And Jesus weeps. Jesus is not cheering. He's not excited about the palm branch wearing. He's not excited about, (laughs) literally the phrase Hosanna that they're yelling at him would be best translated as God save the king. God save the king, national this, national that, wave all national flags. And Jesus cries. Listen, believer, I'm not telling you that you should run from the democratic process, but I came telling you that your hope is not in the White House. Your hope is on the cross. Your hope is in heaven. Your hope is coming again on a white horse, and he will not have been elected there. He seizes it because it's his authority, it's his kingdom, it's his rule. And he cries, he laments this. Verse 45. This is the next day, this is Monday. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. What does this mean? The temple, let me explain why this is such an important concept that, that happens. Um, the temple had circles, um, courts is what they were called. And at the innermost area was the, the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And in the Ark of the Covenant, God put his very presence. And it was so holy and it was so pure that no one could be in there, no one could touch the Ark, no one could go into the Holy of Holies. It was separated by a, a curtain from the ceiling to the floor. And once a year, the high priest, after consecrating himself and doing all the purification rites, would be allowed to go into the Holy of Holy in order to make atonement for the sins of the people once a year. 
And outside, we, in these concentric circles, in these courts, you had uh, various access that were allowed. And at the very outside, you had a court for the Gentiles, a court for those that were not of Jewish origin. And the closest they could get to God was this outer court. And in that outer court, the entire purpose, according to the Old Testament temple design, was that it would be a place of evangelism. That, that foreigners and people that weren't of God's chosen people would be able to come into this court and they would see the worship and they would see how people faithfully served God and they would see how good God was and they would see God's faithfulness on the Jewish people and that in that, in seeing that and being near that, they would know God's goodness and they would be brought to faith in Jehovah Jireh because of the testimony of people. But that's not what Jesus encounters when he walks into the temple. Instead, he walks into the court of Gentiles, and what they've done is they've decided they could find a great way to make a lot of money off people that weren't Jewish and justify that because they weren't Jewish. And so what they've done is they've said, listen, you have to buy these specific animals that are pure to sacrifice. There were different types of animals. And by the way, they were the ones that inspected the animal you brought to decide if it was pure or not. And oh, lo and behold, there were a lot that just had some sort of imperfection. You're gonna have to go buy another. But when you go to buy another, they're marked up really heavily. And then when you go to pay that price, you can't pay with your Roman money. We're only gonna take a specific money that we've decided we want and the only money changers to get that money are also here, and they charge a profit. Little, little racket going on? In the temple. So the very court that was intended to be salt to the earth, a light in the dark place to foreigners and non-Jewish people to know the goodness of God is now a money-making racket so that Jews can get wealthy. You don't see Jesus angry very often. You don't see Jesus cry very often. He does both in this story. He laments over the state of Jerusalem and then he walks into the temple and he is infuriated to the point that we know he makes a whip, he overturns tables and he whips people out of the temple. Why is that a kingdom perspective? Well, let me just ask you this question. Where's the temple now? You see, when Jesus died, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple split down the middle. And when that occurred, we went from isolating God in, a, in an ark of a covenant in a small box in a place that we had no access to to what the Bible says now you and I as believers, as sons and daughters of the king have access to the throne room because God has put his spirit in us. Therefore, we are now God's temple, which is why we are told to steward our body. It's why we're told to live a life that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Because when you put your faith in Christ, you became the temple. So let me ask you a question then. If you're the temple and if the very presence of God in you is now intended to be evangelism to the foreigners, the non-people of God, what in your life is worshiping God and what in your life is making a profit? What in your testimony points to the faithfulness and goodness of God and what in your life points to you getting what you desire? Because this is the problem Jesus has is that the temple is meant for worship. It was designed for worship. And here's the problem. 
If, if you put your faith in Jesus, you were designed for worship. But the kingdom perspective that Jesus has is that if the temple is designed for worship, then anything that's not designed for worship, that's not about giving God glory, is a problem. In fact, anytime you and I look at the circumstances in our lives and think about how we can get what we want, not how can we can glorify God in it, we are practicing idolatry. We're not worshiping God, we're worshiping ourselves. You were bought with a price. You became the temple of God when he put his spirit in you and it says he yearns jealously over the spirit he put in you. And, and the, the problem that you and I have is this. Our problem is that we weren't designed to be the temple from 9 a.m. to 11.30 or so on Sunday morning and then, you know, go live the rest of our life kind of however we see best fit for us. You know, I'm gonna get mine and then I'll give God his. That, that's not the temple design. That's not how you and I were designed. That's not the redeeming savior bought. He didn't buy two hours from you on Sunday. He bought your life. All of it. He bought Monday. He bought Tuesday. He bought Friday night. Some of y'all don't even want to talk about Friday night. He bought it. He redeemed it. He shed his blood for it. It was worth it. He, he bought you when you're at the parade and you got your hands up and you're singing Hosanna and he bought you when you're in the mob outside of Pilate's house screaming to crucify him. He bought all of it. My question is not what he bought. My question is what you're giving to him. It's rightfully his. How much are you giving to him? See, the problem that we have is we get really good at using a kingdom perspective on Sunday morning. We get really good at using a human perspective Monday through Saturday. So here's what I'd like to do today. I'd just like to ask you uh, to do two things. The first is going to be all week. The second is going to be in just a moment as we do some reflection. Um, I would submit to you that there's actually a lot of the gospel that is about the next six days. We couldn't preach through it all. Even if we started 10 weeks ago, and if we started 10 weeks ago preaching through it all, you would have forgot about the time we got to Easter. Let's be honest. So instead, what I would submit to you, believer, if you want to really examine where your life has a kingdom perspective and where your life lacks a kingdom perspective, commit to, for the next six days, waking up and reading a portion of Jesus next six days. Just open up the Bible. It's in all four Gospels. It'd be pretty easy to find. And just read how Jesus spent his time in the six days leading to the cross. And I will submit to you that if you ask the Lord prayerfully and genuinely to examine your life, he will begin to point out to you where you lack a kingdom perspective. For those of you that would not label yourself as a believer or a Christian or a Jesus follower, you would call yourself a skeptic, maybe an investigator, maybe an atheist or an agnostic, maybe you don't even know how to put a label on it, but you would say, man, I'm, I'm definitely not following Jesus. I'm not sure what I'm following. I would tell you this. I believe sincerely that if you will seek the Lord, will prayerfully ask him to reveal himself, that you 
in the next six days, if you will open the Bible and ask him to show himself, he will. What he will show you is two things. One, that he is worth treasuring above all else. He's worth it. He is worth forsaking everything else just to have him. The second thing that will be revealed to you as you begin to read about Jesus is that nothing else in your life will ever satisfy. Nothing else will ever lead to peace and contentment. It's all vanity. It's all fool's gold. It's all uselessness, except for the everlasting love of Christ. What we're gonna do now is we're just gonna take a, a moment. We're gonna sing a song. I'm gonna ask you to just bow your head. And I'm gonna ask you to ask God to search you and know your heart and reveal any uncleanliness in you. Well, what does that mean? This was what David asked God to do when he knew he had sin, when he knew he had blind spots, when he knew he lacked a kingdom perspective in his life. He just asked God, God, show those to me. Make me uncomfortable. Don't allow me to be comfortable living life with a human perspective when eternity is on the line. It's folly. It's building a sandcastle when the hurricane's coming. So we're going to bow our heads, believer and unbeliever alike, and I'm going to ask you to just talk to the Lord and allow his spirit to work powerfully in you and reveal in you areas in your life that need change, areas in your life that need encouragement. And man, if you just had a kingdom perspective in your circumstances today, even though they look hopeless, you would be so encouraged. Areas in your life where you lack conviction, where you have sinned for so long, you're numb. You're not even sure you're sensitive to it anymore. Relationships in your life that you think are so broken, they're beyond restoration. I'll tell you where most of us really struggle to have kingdom perspectives is in our relationships, particularly our marriages, particularly with children that have just run from us and we are broken over them and are hurting and we think there's no hope. So bow your head, believer, unbeliever, and just ask God this, Father, search me and know me. God, show me where there is any uncleanness in me. Convict me, prick me, encourage me. God, satisfy me with your love. God, allow us to see where we have strayed from the gospel, where we have strayed from a kingdom perspective of our circumstances, of our relationship, of our situation, and of our lives, God. God, give us the power and the courage to chase after you, not just Sunday mornings, Monday through Saturday. You move as the Lord leads you. Our pastors and elders are going to be here to pray with you. If you need prayer or encouragement, we'll be here. Love you, church.